Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist, best-selling author, public speaker, and a regular contributor to the Irish media. Her first book, Cotton Wool Kids, was released in 2015, Bully Proof Kids in 2017, and Fragile was released in 2019. Stella was the presenter of the Channel 4 documentary, Trans Kids, It's Time to Talk. And she contributed a chapter to the 2019 book, Inventing Transgender Children and Young People. Stella is also the resident psychotherapist for the current RTE series, Raised by the Village, a family program that helps troubled teenagers reconnect with themselves and their families. Stella works in private practice in rural Ireland. Stella, welcome to Savage Minds. Can you tell our listeners how you came to the gender identity subject, both within your practice and maybe in your life? Okay. Well, I suppose I'm, I'm 46 now. And when I was a kid, I was born in 1974, I had a very intense experience. And it went on for many years. And I was, I'm, an, I'm an intense person now, and I was a very intense person then. And I was very, you know, the famous phrase that they use in the research is, are they consistent, persistent, and insistent with their gender identity? And I was. And for, for around about seven years, from the age of in and around three to in and around 10, I was consistently declaring myself to be a boy. And I was very good at being a boy. I probably would have been a better boy had I been born a boy than a woman, insofar as it, it suited me, you know, it suited my personality. I've no idea what drove me. I was so young, it was pre, you know, it was my earliest memory, if you follow me, was this discomfort of being a girl. And I do look back thinking I was a bit of an internal misogynist because I definitely looked down on girls and all things girlish and womanly and looked up to anything boyish and masculine and male. And that's the tribe I wanted to be with. And I, I maintained that for many years, as I said, during my childhood. Puberty came and it was very, very difficult for me because I came to realize that really the adults in the room were, were patronizing me in a way. They were looking away. They weren't actually challenging me on the boy thing. And I realized, oh, oh, this is, this is, this is more complicated and nature is bigger than me. I do remember that definite feeling of, I can declare I'm a boy all I want, but nature has a different episode ready for me insofar as puberty arrived. And it was like anything could grow. If I'd grown a second head at the time, I don't think I would have been surprised because it was just like my body was completely out of control and there was nothing I could do about it. And so off I went in my life. And over the years I came to, um, become very comfortable with being a woman. I don't know how that happened. It took some years. I had some very dark years and some very dark times with it in and around from 10 to maybe 12 or 13 or something. I'm not sure the actual dates, but I know I was all over the place. And then I was kind of accepting that I am a girl and I wasn't making a big deal of it. And then I finally ended up being happy to be a woman and happy about my womanliness and ended up marrying and having kids. And then years later, I was always very interested in any subject to do with it. Obviously, I became a psychotherapist quite late in life. I was about 30 when I became a psychotherapist. And I was always interested in anything to do with gender, just naturally because of such my, my, my experience as a kid. It was always going to be something that was on my mind more than other people. Always aware that it was a road that I nearly took. And certainly it was a road that I, not that I nearly took because I was too young and I wasn't aware of the concept of it really back then, but I was aware that I must have had the emotions that these people who transitioned must have had. I, I was very aware of, I had a deeper empathy with them than others. And so I followed, I would imagine the trans debate that little bit more than other people. And every so often I'd make noises to people like my husband or my, my sister. I really must say my experience, it's not being shown in the media, it's not being given any sort of um, rep representation. And every time I'd say it, people would look at me as in, you're mad, that world is crazy, don't go near it. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I must. Now I write, I often, I've written a few books. I often write for the national media in Ireland. And so then one day I, I read about a person called Cyril Doty. And the, this is a person in Canada and the, the child was nine months old and born perfectly healthy. But the mother 
of the child, uh, of the infant, was fighting the Canadian courts for the right for this child to be assigned you at birth. And you was standing for you, unknown or unassigned. And that just angered me. I just thought that's just inflicting your child with... The child didn't have any gender issues. The child was nine months old and was not born with any sort of you know, sex disorders or sex differences that somebody else might have. It was a perfectly healthy child that the parent was insisting upon inflicting their gender politics upon and it annoyed me. And so I wrote an article because I often write for the media, it was easy to do, saying I had an experience with, with gender and I don't see it being represented anywhere in the media. It's nowhere. Where are all these kids that were like me? Because I know I wasn't alone because nobody's alone really in any human experience because we always find somebody who shares something. And from that, I was invited by Channel 4, first of all, to contribute to their film, Trans Kids. And then they asked me, would I, would I be interested in being a presenter? And I worried about it. And everybody who knew me said, Jesus, don't go near it. No way. And my husband was very good. He was like, go for it. <laughs> and I said, absolutely, I'll go for it. I knew I was getting into really, really stormy waters. I was well aware of it, but I still wasn't aware of how complex it was, how many layers there were, how many different sides of politics. It's the most compelling world I've ever been in. And I had no idea I was getting into something so deep that I got into. Well, yeah, it, it, it's something that people warned me about. I wrote a piece in 2013 and everyone warned me about it. And I was like, oh, I'll be right. fine. Oh, but they'll harass you. And I'm like, oh, I'll be fine. <gasps> I had no idea what that level of <laughs> harassment was going to be. I really didn't. I would like to say I was, I was naive. Um, I was warned and I can be naive. But about that, I thought, Okay, I've, I've dealt with, I've been in like the Contra yeah. War in Nicaragua. You know, I can <laughs> handle war. I'll handle it. Oh, no, they, they dwarf the Contras. Um, the, the episodes of, of threats lasted for many months. I had to leave the UK. It was most unpleasant. Um, the upside is it did leave me with a thick skin to basically let it all wash off my back since. Uh, I've had trolls since, but not many. Yeah, I, I think I, I know I had a, a fairly, yeah, a fairly difficult life in my early years. And I, 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 there is a kind of toughness to me, I suppose, that I, I'm kind of able for it. But I still, like yourself, had no idea just how vicious and vitriolic it could get. I knew it was mad, but I didn't realize it was so. But it was quite interesting because Ollie Lambert did the film with us and he's the director of the film. And he has spent his entire work is, you know, Iraq, you know, the Middle East, Iran, all sorts of kind of Israel and Palestine. And the film he did after Trans Kids was about Israel and Palestine. And he said he had more difficulty trying to get the people on both sides of the trans debate to talk than he did for the Israelis and the Palestinians to talk. It's just unbelievable that it's got to this. It feels so incongruous that he could say this sentence. And yet, you know, this is a man who's done maybe like certainly 20 to 30 films. And he was shocked by the level of polarization that has happened to this specific debate, which may I point out, really doesn't need to be so vitriolic. An awful lot of us, whether we're on one side or the other, agree that trans people should be given room in society to live, that there should be a place for people to do what they wish in life. So it, it seems unbelievable that it's, it's so intensely hostile. Well, I think there's a few things going on with the trans debate that um, no one's discussing some of it. The larger question, you know, we see the two camps of people who are pushing back, mm. which are often womenist or, or uh, what did I say? I said womanist, sorry, feminists or women who don't consider themselves feminists, but find that this is an important issue and men as well who find this an important issue. That's one group. The other group yeah. are the people who are pro-free speech saying, hey, you can't have me echo your personal conception of your selfhood, which I also you know, have to say, I agree with that argument as well. But I think there's a larger problem at the core and in a strange way, we've come across this 
coincidence of time and place where the internet is being used in such a way which I think also exacerbates the negativity of these conversations. Everything comes about how many likes, clicks, whatever you can get, you know, to approve what you're saying and how many people will pile on and, you know, defend you or not. And I don't like that aspect of it on social media. But the other part is it comes down to, I'd say, a spirit of what this means. I mean, it touches upon free speech and free expression, but what does this mean to conceive yourself as X or W, but that you must enforce that everyone see you as that? And I often use, because the, we are all psychological beings, we're all social beings, but we all in our lives have to learn to deal with boundaries. And I think boundaries are some of the hardest things for women to handle. I do think, like the experience when I saw you describing it on, on the documentary and just now, I've had a similar experience in the sense of, I grew up in Canada from, you know, until the age of 10. I played hockey. There were no girls playing on the hockey teams on the streets of Canada, but mm. the boys let me, oh, you're a, you're a girl, but you can play. You can pl and I played well. So they were like, great, she's on my team. Okay. But as you grow older, and that's where puberty kicks in, these questions about identity, um, as it's being called today, when I was growing up, I'm a bit older than you, um, but in the 70s is when I was playing street hockey in Canada, in the late 70s, I guess. Um, and I didn't, you know, I knew I was a female. I knew I was a girl, but I rather liked the boys' clothes better. It, it wasn't until I was 30 that I liked, you know, clothes made for women. Uh, my entire life, I liked clothes made for men. They tended to be sturdier, better quality, less polyester, more you name it. More comfortable. Yeah. And a so lot of this, much more comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. And then I had a, an incident when I was living in Morocco and I wanted to get a jellaba. I go to the market my family told me to go to, but all the jellaba for women were made of polyester. And I wanted a nice wool jellaba because it was, we were heading into winter. In Fez, it's cold in winter. It's a short winter, but it's a cold one. I came home with a wool jillaba and my family laughed. And uh, this is the family I was living with while I was studying Arabic. And uh, they said, well, you're wearing a man's jillaba. And I said, how can you tell? And he said, <laughs> well, the material, the cut. And I said, but the women's jillaba, I'd be freezing. And he laughed and he said, no, you did the right thing. It's just, in, it's just for us, it's funny to see a woman in a man's jillaba. Well, this is the funny thing, is even the cuts, even the, the, the move of the fabric, all of this is taken into consideration in fashion. Now, you know, where have we come as a society in, let's say, the West, not just Ireland, but Canada, New Zealand, what have you, that we can accept that women wear 501 blue jeans, women can wear cowboy boots, but still the obstacle of where men can go vestiture wise is very much, it hasn't progressed that much in, you know, the last 150 years or so, you know, since men started wearing trousers regularly. Yeah. 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 And I do, I just wonder to what degree, and I'm not discounting because we'll talk about, you know, gender dysphoria or previously gender identity yeah, yeah. disorder. But I do think that a lot of what we're witnessing today and what, I'm, what I will call, you know, it's not ROGD because we're not talking about children, but it is a cultural contagion of the nine bi binary, agender, what have you, all of that vocabulary people, um, that they are experimenting with vestiture. They're experimenting to a certain degree with performativity of femininity and masculinity. But instead of saying, I'm a feminine and masculine creature in, you know, a male body or a female body. It's coming out as I'm really this. How did we get from that notion where femininity and masculinity were somehow these guiding uh, vectors in the 1950s and 60s for this new medicine to today where it's no longer about masculinity or femininity as performatives, but actually being the opposite quote unquote sex, but it's called gender. Yeah, there was a big shift. And I, I'm very interested in figuring out who, who first kind of made that leap. But it was somewhere in my, in my view, I've studied it a lot um, in recent times because myself and Sasha Ayed, she's a psychotherapist, you might know her. Oh, We've just her. launched it. Yeah, she's great. We've just launched a web, 
funnily enough, a podcast today called Gender, A Wider Lens. And so we've been studying gender and studying all the kind of different psychological drives behind gender, trying to give it a, a wider lens. And so I've been studying this. And as far as I can gather, something along the lines of there was the gay and, liber gay and lesbian liberation movement in the 70s. And they very much pushed the concept of born this way. People were born gay or lesbian. This is my own running theory here. And then uh, the, the tea part of the LGB movement just was kind of added on slightly mindlessly in the 90s, perhaps by people who had a lot less than mindless. Maybe they had very much a strategy to add themselves onto the LGB. But most people certainly accepted it mindlessly, even though it's a very different concept. Being, you know, sexual orientation is very different than gender identity. But it was added on, I think, by most groups as, oh yeah, let's be inclusive, let's be welcoming. It's no biggie. Even though everybody knew, and even I knew in the 90s, and I'm not gay or lesbian, so I wasn't part of that group. But I remember thinking, why the hell is T part of LGB? It's a very different experience. It's, it's, it's nothing to do with sexual orientation. It's to do with a discomfort in yourself most often, not always, but most often, and a desire to be something else. It's not about, um, and yet I think it kind of, it got merged. And also at the very same time in the 90s, a lot of things happened conceptually in the 90s, and I think we're only feeling it now. But in the 90s, about 1995, 1996, transvestite and transsexual were merged into one to become transgender as an umbrella concept. And that in itself was a fascinating move because um, they're both very different things again and they were made as one. So this merging in the 90s that happened in the name of linguistics and maybe acceptance and, and inclusivity and words like that. And at the very same time, there was an awful lot of talk about affirmative action. And it feels like it's no accident that then they started talking about affirmative therapy for this. And so when they started talking about conversion therapy, they were talking about the concept of, which was a horrible practice way back in the 50s and 60s and pre that, where gay and lesbian people were, were suffered enormous, enormous torture at the hands of people like myself, psychotherapists, and also psychologists and psychiatrists, where they gave them horrible treatments to try and get rid of their gay tendency to get rid of their sexual orientation and so they've merged that into gender and it's like these are two different concepts that just got merged was it done as part of a plan did somebody actually plan let's stick t onto lgb in the 90s and then create this whole world of identity if they did if if there was some svengali who was creating this wow this person could run the world or did it happen a little bit more haphazard that they wanted it and then it, 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 got, it ran with, as you said, all sorts of other kind of perfect storms that were coming together around identity, around the fact that there was a huge amount of money made from genderizing children and from genderizing babies in the 1990s. It feels like a perfect storm that they were making all this money by making girls pink and blue at the very same time as in another context, they were, they were merging LGB and T. And then in the noughties, this came together of gendered kids. And, you know, 90% of kids are happy being gendered. And there's a section of kids, the non-conforming kids, they hate being gendered. And that whole pink and blue of, of the children really, really sat very badly with them. And they're the ones who are mostly being hurt by this. Well, I remember another thing happening in the mid-90s. Okay. And it's significant. Yeah. I did research social, uh, I'm an anthropologist by training, and I did social research for Gay Men's Health Crisis, which was the first AIDS organization in the US that was set up by Larry Kramer and uh, various okay. other uh, gay men at the time. But in 96, Crixavan came on the market, was approved by the FDA. Gay organizations that I was working with, uh, GMHC and one other, they had to suddenly shift their mandate because they could no longer find the need in the communities that they had previously served, primarily gay men, some lesbians. And they thought, well, maybe we need to reach out to all people suffering with AIDS. So I was part of a group of researchers and we researched this to find out that effectively the people suffering from AIDS in New York City, for instance, were 
primarily not gay anymore. It was a primarily heterosexual uh, cohort of Black Americans, Latino Americans, straight women as well. So this is where Crixavan kicks in. It suddenly helps people live with AIDS. AIDS becomes manageable in the same way that a certain type of other disease like diabetes could be managed through medication. And these organizations uh, no longer could do the quilt and the red ribbons everywhere. And they had another mission to do or they had to shut their doors. And the mission became T very quickly thereafter, I noticed. Just from me being in the gay community, going to my gay spaces or lesbian bars and finding sometimes there were more men than women in lesbian bars. And lesbian bars uh, tended to be initially very inclusive, but there were then divisions and women were, I won't go to this place anymore because there's more men than women there. And, and some people might say this is unkind to call them men, but uh, coming from a, a, a group of people who had suffered, as you mentioned, not just by at the hands of psychiatrists or psychotherapists, but a society in general. And they have, you know, in New York in the, in the late 90s, there were still just a few bars for women, but not many. There were dozens for men, but a few for women. So I saw that the demographic and organizations like ACT UP and uh, other gay organizations that even dealt with more social issues suddenly branched out to T. And like you, I was, it wasn't until the late 90s that it dawned on me, why is T being added to us? This is a medical mm. pathology. We are not, we're not going out and saying to the society, see us as heterosexual and accept us. And that's sort of the way I see a lot of the trans community performing their identity. It's not just except that I'm a man who I like to dress in a certain, I don't care. Now, most people don't care about how people dress or if they want to call themselves anything in the privacy of their own house or with their friends in a bar, or what have you. The problem, as I've noticed from feminists cluing me in as to what was going on within, let's say, London, when I moved to London, I had all these women telling me, okay, this is what's happening. And they told me about the political overthrow of certain councils to this, certain parts of the Labour Party. And I was a bit alarmed to find out after I published my first piece on this in 2013, all the death threats that came at me, I'm thinking, wow, this isn't just paranoia. This is actually what they said was going to happen actually has happened to me. I got over a hundred death and rape threats. My six-year-old, a six-month-old daughter as well. My editor, his daughter, I mean we were threatened to death such that eventually I was told we can't run any more pieces on this subject. And it, wow. it took a toll within media and publishing. I'm sure you know which publications will write negative or positively, which is sad yeah. because I think there's two narratives happening. There's the truly gender dysphoric individuals who speak out on all sides of this as well. And then there is the more social uh, vogue, if I can call it as such, of people suddenly deciding they're non-binary because they really didn't like SpongeBob or they really like this and that. But a lot of what they like and don't like has mostly to do with vestiture and stereotype. So then my question becomes, what is gender? If, if, it's, if gender is medicalized, how can we talk about gender then? Yeah, I know. It, the, the medicalization of an identity seems to me to be unnecessary. Why can't, as you said, you know, the vestiture of the males really hasn't been very expanded. We haven't even explored it. We haven't yet lived in a world where boys could wear dresses without comment and boys could wear, you know, all the kind of extraordinary kind of um, clothes and accoutrements that women have from makeup to kind of our hair to all sorts of things. Boys haven't yet ever really opened that door unless they're really gender expansive, they haven't. So we haven't yet had that world and yet we're already medicalizing these identities. It feels unnecessary and it feels like we could be more creative and we could widen bandwidths in, in other ways without creating a scenario which carries a very heavy medical burden. And I suppose that's my issue with transitioning. If, if somebody wants to transition, I think they should be free to do so, so long as they're an adult and they're not encroaching on anybody else's um, spaces. But I really do think that it's very important that people are aware that the medical burden is 
very difficult and that is it brings its own problems and so identity is one thing and medicalizing your identity is a whole other step and might it be in the 2030s like 10 15 years from now will they look back and just think why were they medicalizing it why weren't they just being creative why weren't they being expansive there's so much that we could be doing in it you know so that people could be really quite playful with their gender and instead it, it's very difficult not to feel that big pharma has insinuated its way into a political storm and made an awful lot of money out of people wanting to to kind of play around with their identity in a post-religious age because nowadays like god and religion it feels very 20th century to be talking about it mm-hmm. and a lot of these kids have almost well, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in anything. I believe in me and I believe in my creation and my creation is my identity. And it's, it's held in a very similar way that, you know, per, my, per, people of my parents' generation held God. It's kind of, it, it's circular reasoning. I believe I am non-binary and therefore I am. And you have to believe it in the very same way as that when I was a kid, I was told, you know, there's the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost, and they are three and they are one. And you just have to get your head around that, Stella. One is three and three is one. And I couldn't get my head around it. And nor can I get around the fact that you're non-binary when anybody who knows anything about biology realizes you have to be male or female because that's how the world exists. That's how nature exists. And we are animals. Well, indeed, my worry about children and adults is that we've gotten to this point of negating that basic reality. I'm sure you're aware, even, you know, being in Ireland of what's going on in the UK with cancer research, telling people with cervixes to come in for a check, which I'm sure will go well. It's it's happening in Ireland too. It's, It's really troubling because everything women have fought against, feminist or not, self-declared feminist or not, I should say, has been about pushing back at this kind of objectification. I mean, women were reified. The The Enlightenment was the beginning of this kind of crumbling of it, as was the French, French Revolution with people like uh, Flora Tristan, who wrote a very important book about workers' rights to include women's rights. Uh, Engels wrote, you know, History of Family, That's Private right. Property in the State, which are two important texts that pin down the necessity of women to be liberated in class terminology. Now, we've lost a lot of the class. We have. We've uh, pretty much look at what's happened with labor in England, where, you know, the concern wasn't with all these people living along the towpaths in central London, homeless. It was pronouns. Uh, And clearly, you know, recently I've spoken to many people working within the left and Labour Party on the show who have come out critiquing Labour's actions and and, and enmeshing itself within identity politics because that goes directly against any kind of historical materialist reading of our lives. I mean, it would be patently absurd for someone to tell Corbyn, but I identify as upper middle class. I live in a council estate. No (laughs) one would buy that. How is it that the only thing that I've witnessed in my lifetime and in all my readings, I've read quite a bit of history, that this is the only kind of medical slash social diagnosis that remedy is for the society to embrace these people? You wouldn't, you know, tell society just, okay, just pretend that John doesn't have a drinking problem and he'll be okay. Or mm. um, I always say, you know, these diagnoses of telling someone that they really are in need of, of a gender change is similar to if I was kidnapped and fell in love with my captor and had Stockholm syndrome for a doctor to say to me then, well, you should perhaps marry your captor, you know? I mean, these would not be sound advice from any professional. Yet yeah. with gender dysphoria, the advice seems to be twofold. The subject, is told that they can have any of these options medically or vestiture wise. And society is now being sent these messages through media, governments, public policy saying, but we need to respect their pronouns. Even the National Union of Journalists and other uh, journalist organizations have gone through their code and have come up with the formula that they have to use the preferred pronouns. 
I know. And uh, what I can't, because I'm a psychotherapist, what I can't quite wrap my head around is my profession disregarding the 150 years worth of, of literature that shows that like there is generally underlying motivations driving anything. And the knowledge that we've acquired over the last 150, 150 years that when somebody compels you to say something about them that doesn't, that isn't true, there is generally a reason behind that. There's a psychological reason and it, it can be very helpful for you and for the other person to explore that. And it, it brings about self-awareness and self-awareness is, and you know, there's a concept called, you know, your real self and your, you know, your, your ideal self, let's say Carl Rogers, the psychologist proposed that. And, you know, the bigger the gap between your real self and your ideal self, the more conflict. So we all know this, this is way back in the seventies. Before that, there was Winnicott who talked about, you know, people's true self. So there's, there's so much literature already discussing how people try to deny different aspects of themselves and try to pretend that they are other than what they are because they don't want to be who they are and they rejecting themselves and all about self-acceptance and all of that, that was so done and dusted and tied up in a bow and we all understood it. And then we all suddenly, as, a, as an industry, collectively had amnesia and we suddenly thought, oh yeah, but with identity, all of our learning is absolutely put to the side and ignored. And now we have a new concept where if they say they are something, they are it. And if they change their mind about that, they also are the new thing. And if they change it again, they also are that. So if I was to really kind of blame any one industry for this mess of polarized debate and distress that we have, I'd be inclined to go towards the doctors and the psychologists really, because I think they have they were trained to know better and they have allowed this to unfold. You're listening to Savage Minds. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We depend on listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Well, you know, we've seen since uh, Freud... Let's begin with Freud, yeah. because I think there's a serious problem right there, that the doctors today speaking with their patients, now called clients in many countries, about their perceived dysphoria. Freud, he said that he basically quantified woman as lack, and the woman lacked the phallus, right? This is Freud's reading. That's and, right. and then Luce Garret years later in the you know 70s and 80s was writing about that this is a problem and she places Freud akin to Simone de Beauvoir and she talks about how de Beauvoir locates woman as an excess and I think that psychoanalysis specifically um, of which I know a lot more frankly but a psychoanalysis could be useful to I, I'm going to use the word remedy with gender dysphoria in the sense of I know personally, I have benefited greatly from psychoanalysis, a great analyst in New York. And I think personally, I think everyone should have an analyst, you know? I mean, I'm a New Yorker though, so we all think that. But, <laughs> you would think that. <laughs> yeah, no, because I know in England and in the UK in general, there's a, a, a taboo upon that. I was speaking with a friend that I suggested uh, for, for a problem she was telling me about. I said, well, maybe you should try psychoanalysis. Oh, I'm not crazy, was the response. And I'm like, no, it has nothing to do with being crazy or in need of remedy. It's about working through issues and talking and I try to explain the process but in the end I do feel like we've been giving a hand a weighted hand towards medical intervention over talk therapy and I can't help but wonder if this will be seen as gatekeeping I know some trans advocates say this uh, by all people or if we have just an ambivalent relation to therapy and look to medicine as the go-to in most cases. Yeah, more than that though, so, you know, kind of psychoanalysis, you know, certainly had its heyday in, in the USA, but I, I really don't think in the last 20 or 30 years, psychoanalysis has been as popular or as common in the UK or Ireland and other countries and very much person-centered, you know, um, CBT has arisen in the last 10, 20 years. And that's a lot more, 
that's a lot different. And you're right. I think psychoanalysis suits gender issues. And I think CBT and that person centers doesn't really suit it. It doesn't really get behind it. It doesn't talk about the symbolism. It doesn't talk about, you know, this, the story behind somebody's motivation. So I think that the drop in the interest in psychoanalysis has coincided in the rise in people saying, I can be what I want to be. And your job as a, as a therapist is to, is to support me in being what I want to be. Because that's, you're the supportive role. And psychoanalysis doesn't really go at that. They would be more like, well, why do you want to be that? And they go deeper. And this kind of nowadays therapy is like in and out, especially with insurance and things like that. They want it. And that's why they love CBT, because it apparently gives results. And I say that I have a master's in CBT, so I, I, I shouldn't really disregard it. It has its place, but it also has its lacks. And it doesn't seem to go deeper in a way that psychoanalysis is more than prepared to go all the way with you. Well, why would you want to do that? Where is that driving? Where is it coming from? And I think, yeah, these days to ask somebody, well, why? Almost feels like you're not being supportive. You're not being supportive. What, who cares why? I want to do it. And I am your client and you are my servant as such. I'm paying you for the service. And so support me now. Well, indeed, we're seeing this also the clientelism of students in undergraduate yeah. and graduate studies, which have driven this. I'm finishing a piece up today on this, in fact. And I do think clientelism of the student body in the UK in recent years and forever in the US and in other countries, you know, um, the fees are less than the US, but most English speaking countries have fees now. And that ability to... It's foment a narrative of gender ideology based on Judith Butler and um, I find a bit tenuous and and so I I'm left wondering as a therapist when you have someone coming in to see you who claims to be gender dysphoric or might be curious as to if he or she has gender dysphoria and you are listening to the story and you're grasping that this person didn't really have the typical signs of gender dysphoria during childhood, that they may very much be part of the social contagion. How do you handle that as a therapist? Well, you see, because I'm not a, a, a psychologist, psychologists are very diagnostically driven and they're very interested in what's your diagnosis and have you got the diagnosis? And we will see and we will do all these assessments. And then once you have the diagnosis, everything stems from the diagnosis. And I, I didn't go into that for a reason. I went into psychotherapy because I wasn't interested in the diagnosis. I just, it doesn't, it doesn't enlighten me and it doesn't engage me the way, what are the problems of living that you have? And that's exactly how I work with anybody who comes to, in to see me. That I'm like, what are your problems in living? What are your challenges today? What are your challenges in life? And how can we work together so that they will be um, improved and that you'll have self-awareness and learn about your patterns and you will be the better for it. And as a result, I really don't, I don't, I'm not so interested in whether it's ROGD or it's gender disorder. And I know ROGD isn't a diagnosis. What is the phenomenon that's happening? What is it social contagion? I'm like, yeah, I want to explore all of it, but I'm not going to get hung up on whether it is one or the other, because I'm much more interested in how is it for you, the individual right in front of me, and how can we make it better? I, I, I really do think that this concept of is it gender dysphoria and does gender dysphoria equal trans, that, that kind of unnerves me a little bit, because if you've looked at the criteria, it's pretty basic. The criteria for a child to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria, it's a checklist of eight items. Five out of eight of them are based on gender, gender stereotypes five out of eight, and you only need to check six for you to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria, and you only need it for six months. Well, I had all eight for seven years, and so I'm like, <laughs> I couldn't care less about the diagnosis, because I think it's, it's, it's facile to presume that real gender dysphoria equals they should transition. I think real gender dysphoria, if we're going to go towards diagnosis, yeah, it's a, it's a descriptor, you know, it's a diagnosis, it's a condition, that people have. And some people, you know, can do the checklist of depression and some people move on from depression and they don't need any medication. Some people get depression and they need medication. Some people get depression and they end up in hospital and they cannot shift it. And some people are left with depression all their life. 
Equally, there are other conditions that have lots of different ways of treatment. And I think so, so it should be with gender dysphoria. You might have gender dysphoria and you might talk it through and it might leave you. Or you might have gender dysphoria and might end up with maybe antidepressants or something like that. Or you might take testosterone or you might end up in hospital with surgery and things like that. And it still mightn't work. So I suppose as a psychotherapist, I'll always emphasize talking is probably a much more valuable route to take than medicalizing because I, I just think medicalizing any condition is often quite dangerous and often doesn't bring the value that it promises. There's something very alluring about take this pill and you'll feel better. And it's not necessarily true. Well, certainly, I mean, a lot of the 20th century was caught up in experimental medicine from shock therapy mm. to the overprescription of Valium of largely housewives in the US, I know, uh, post-war. Massive. All the women who were in fab factories living for the first time in their lives while their spouses were fighting the war, they were living, you know, a regular life with a job. And then husband comes back, takes his job back. She's stuck back at home. Yeah. Uh, there was an interesting experimentation going on there with pharmaceuticals. Uh, and lobotomies. There was a yes. huge run on the lobotomies. And like, it was extraordinary what my, my industry did in, in the 50s and 60s. It was awful. Sorry to cut in. Go ahead. No, no, no. Do you think, though, that, that we're looking at something similar in the sense of, I mean, these procedures, as you well know, are now affecting more females than males. Uh, we're seeing regretters coming out of the closet, if I can use that expression. Um, and, and it's really the tip of the iceberg from what some of them are telling me. Um, to what degree yeah. are we engaged in a really reckless medicalization of a feeling? Yeah. Um, it's very hard not to come to that conclusion. It's very hard not to think that we're in the middle of a medical scandal that's unfolding. I certainly, I work, um, I'm a founding member actually of the IATDD and that's the International Association of Therapists for Desisters and Detransitioners. And I work with detransitioners quite often. And the difference between working with a desister and a detransitioner is quite stark because detransitioners will often have, you know, huge changes have been brought upon them because doctors decided that this was appropriate. And yet when the, these, and they're often kids, we're talking about kids who are 22, 23, who have, you know, assumed a trans identity, transitioned, taken testosterone, it often is testosterone, had a mastectomy, come around to the fact that the, it hasn't got rid of their distressing feelings and realized that identity wasn't really the issue. There were some other issues that needed to be explored. And then, left behind their trans identity and become somebody who's now a detransitioner. And very often they leave behind the detrans identity and they just become themselves who has been through an awful lot of things. And yeah, I do think that it's very reminiscent, certainly like, uh, you know, this, you know, the satanic daycare panic that happened in the eighties and nineties, there's been some really dreadful scenarios where psychiatrists and psychologists particularly, um, they got ahead of themselves and they thought they were very clever and they started playing God with people who were very vulnerable and it didn't end very well at all. And this is certainly, it feels to me when I, with my work with detransitioners, it feels like this is not ending well. And really people in my, uh, uh, psychologists and psychotherapists and psychiatrists really need to take note that there's an awful lot of people who are very, very unhappy. When my film came out, it was funny. One thing that I noticed was I was, I was contacted with more people who regretted than detransitioners. These were people who were saying, if I was to live my life over, I wouldn't have transed. But I've trans now and I'm just living with it. Now, there does seem to be an arc of in and around seven to 10 years from transitioning to being happy, to finding it very difficult, to detransitioning and to saying, you know, I wish I hadn't. It takes an awful lot of courage to regret a massive decision. Most people don't, don't regret their massive decisions, even if they haven't been positive decisions, they don't regret them. They say, oh, it was part of my life. Very few people will actually regret something. It's interesting. Well, I think the regretting would involve a lot more, I don't want to say courage at all, but self-sacrifice in a sense, because yeah. you've, you've taken parts of your body off or, or you've had them removed or you've uh, conceded to be sterile, etc. 
and these are issues that I worry a lot when I, people say, well, after 18 is fine. I worry about people who are 19 and 23. I do. Oh, I worry a lot. And you know, could I just jump in that it's very accepted in, in my world that the age cohort between 18 and 25 are considered young adults. And they're, you know, if you come out of a care system between 18 and 25, you're still in the care system on some level. It's very well known that people, let's say, with other conditions, they're still vulnerable between 18 and 25. And this idea that 18 is the magic number, it's it's a farce. It's not true. You're very vulnerable at 18. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I went to university when I was extremely young. I was 16. And I know, you know, I was like this child prodigy. So everyone sort of treated me oddly because I was so young, but I still wow. had to go through all of my adolescence the same, just in the university setting. And um, one can be intellectually quick as I was and emotionally not. And if I had to make yeah. those kinds of choices, I can guarantee that would not have been the best choice. Like I joined the army when I was quite young, <laughs> um, which I did. Yeah, I did. Uh, and, you know, I don't regret it. It actually gave me quite a lot of things. Um, I also didn't go to war, though, so the story might have been different um, had I been in a war. But I do think that what we're seeing amongst the rising cases... I'll tell you what, more people contacted me that regretted transitioning, but they felt they were past the point of no return and they weren't detransitioning, almost like Scott Nugent, who's on Twitter that he, he seems to regret his transition, but he's not detransitioning. It's like, it's more trouble to detransition than to just roll along. Are, the, are, are you finding that there are more people, young adults, even in their early 20s, who are identifying as transgender, who come from care homes? I know, uh, I know the research, um, um, at the, the, there has been a lot of research that says that, yes, people in care are more likely. Um, in my own practice, mm, no, I haven't particularly noticed it, but I know there is research out there. So you are right to pick me up on it. It's quite noticeable how many people in care who have uh, a trans identity and who've also detransitioned and desisted. And these are vulnerable kids. There's no doubt about it. They're vulnerable kids who presumably lost their way. Well, you described, you know, in your in your film and just earlier that you just you felt like you were a boy when you were a child. You said you ticked all eight categories. Yeah. But I have to say that most of us females, women, have had to combat these kinds of gender stereotypes that would exclude us in one thing and include us in another. For instance, when I was growing up, almost all the girls in my neighborhood had to wash up while their brothers went outside and played, you know, hockey or football or whatnot. Um, and, and girls and women both have to push back on these kinds of, of imbalanced requirements throughout our lives. I know I have, and I still do. I, I know that people will react to me differently, even because of where I come from, my accent or whatnot. But to what degree is gender merely a performance that is in, inculcated into children by their parents at a young age? And to what degree has this recent wave of social codifications of gender as fixed imposed a new dilemma for gender in the sense of we've got a battleground of the people who are on the trans side saying, but gender is really somatic, it's physical, it's no longer sex. Sex is on a, is on a scale of grays, mm -hmm. but gender is more, you know, symptomatic of a medical uh, truth. And they've basically inverted sex and gender while the yeah. gender critics are saying, but wait, gender is a completely social narrative. Uh, and I fall into that second category. I don't see gender as anything other than a performative of masculinity or femininity. For instance, I give you a really good example is I recently watched the film Emma. And 
it's got a character, Johnny Flynn, who has the most feminine role in the movie. And it's a beautiful scene when he's getting dressed. And the clothes that men wore of this era were wow. beautiful. And you have yeah. to see this scene, but it's quite stunning. And he's being put together in clothes that, you know, I have to wonder if some of the men identifying as transgender today could dress as they did in the 17th or 18th centuries when men's clothes were far more feminine than they are today. Would they, would they maybe feel less dysphoric? And then the other part, of what I'm thinking, it's almost the inverse, is how did we come to see ourselves through one, one tiny people? We're looking at gender and, you know, like gender to me isn't frock or jeans. It's not, do I wear, you know, Superman pajamas or my son wants Spider-Man pajamas or do I wear frozen pajamas? it's just clothing. Like most of us women, we've had to combat all that because we are freer to wear dresses or pants. We are freer to wear pretty much anything and we wouldn't get people looking at us oddly. Yeah, I think you're so right actually, to be honest about that point about the, the men and the 17th and 18th century. I think I don't know but I know I've spoken to a lot of, of um, men who've wished to transition or who have transitioned. And there is a feeling of the, that there's this kind of curtain behind which the women do their frilly stuff and they want to be part of it. And I wonder if they could have a more sensuous kind of luxurious kind of clothes that were really flamboyant and really had their kind of all their accoutrements with it might that absorb them? M might it be a sensuality that they, they, they wish to, to kind of get in touch with? A lot of boys who are gendered as far as, well, uh, teenagers, they seem to be gentle and sensitive and they want to kind of have that gentle and sensitive personality. And in this fixed, extraordinary, aggressive new era, it's like the boys have to be this and the girls have to be that. And you, you cannot play around unless you're willing to go into another category and that's trans. And if you want to go into that, you're now allowed play with your, with your kind of gender expansiveness. It feels really aggressive. I'm not regressive. I'm not sure whether I, I answered what you were asking, but it's just you really inspired me when you talk about the 17th and 18th century clothes because I thought and I know people will absolutely criticize me for saying this because they'll say it's not about clothes it's about something within you and I'm like yeah but we've never actually found this gender that's within people it's never science has never put their finger on it it doesn't seem to exist in a tangible reality so maybe it's more a psychological drive well we all have psychological drives to various things though correct I mean we all are we're creatures of, of certain kinds of habits, of curiosity, of breaking maybe certain ha other habits and creating new ones, new traditions. And I always, you know, I always wonder why are we seeing people who have a gender identity that's based on clothing, but not on, I want to make 30% less on my check every week. You know? It doesn't make sense to me. Do you remember that Dutch guy who decided to identify as 15 <laughs> years younger or something? Yes. And yes. Rachel Dolezal, who identified as, as black when she was white. I don't understand why that's offensive to people with gender. I'm like, you know, as one, like, you know, if you're going to identify identify let everybody identify I, I don't think it's fair one thing you did touch on earlier that I do want to uh, bring up because it's such an important point was that that this is the first condition or phenomenon that compels speech from others it compels buy-in it's not good enough that they think that they are non-binary we have to think it and it's not good enough that we even say it we have to actually think it we're not allowed even just kind of give lip service. We have to go further and we actually have to give brain service to their thoughts. And we have to allow, we have to kind of suppress our thoughts and have other thoughts. So we're not allowed to think that they may not be non-binary. We have to think that they are. That's the new diktat. And that's very, very repressive. And it's the thing that has kept me in this debate. You mentioned free speech. That would be kind of number two. But this feeling of, being compelled to think a certain way. It just, it, everything within me, everything within me uh, fights back against that. Well, it seems to be that 
<clears throat> what's really driven the ire of most women, and myself included, is that there seems to be a core of arrogance within the gender identity narrative that presents knowledge of quote unquote being a woman from outside, uh, based almost entirely upon the very problematic regions that all females have had to combat body size, breasts, clothing, etc., yeah. and social roles. So, can you understand why feminists find this identity troubling since they are the unwilling mirror of a lot of these people, men, who say, oh, but I'm a woman too, TWAW? Yeah, especially non-conforming women. It's like, a, you know, we have, we've spent many, many years fighting for the right to wear trousers, to act as we wish, to sit as we wish, to walk as we wish. And then to be told, oh, no, I want to be a woman, but not like you, because basically a non-conforming woman is too close to a man for a trans woman's kind of like liking it. And instead, a trans woman wants to be a very gender conforming woman. And so the gender non-conforming people are left out in the cold and vice versa. You know, the other direction also works. But the gender non-conforming people have been the people who are most hurt by this huge wave. And uh, some of the gender non-conforming people have transitioned and have become very much the people who are most pro the trans um, phenomenon, while other non-conforming people have just rejected it, saying this is exactly how society shouldn't go. We should have freedom to be non-conforming. I'm very much of the freedom to be non-conforming. I'm not into medicalizing identities. I'm not into medicalizing almost anything. When my kids say that they have a headache, I say, oh, you must be stressed. I never think of a Panadol <laughs> because I don't tend towards medicalizing anything. <laughs> well, there's a lot of concern around the child issue, which I'm sure you saw the news of last week, the Kira, Kira Bell and the mother Kira of Bell. a gender dysphoric child that have now <clears throat> won their battle so far against uh, the Tavistock, while the judge underlined that there needs to be more evidence and documentation of these kids. I think there was quite a shock on behalf of the judges that there was so little documentation uh, attained. Yeah. So my question to you is this, you are aware of the rise of transdiagnosis among adolescent females who have, don't have a significant history of childhood gender dysphoria, yeah. while many are suffering from comorbidities of mental health issues and yeah. neurodevelopmental conditions such as autism, ASD, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorders. Okay, so I know the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine has the scope of understanding this, and you're involved in that, you're a member yeah. of that society. What do we know so far about these other comorbidities? Well, we know that the majority of these children who have what Lisa Lippmann uh, described as rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is basically they would have had pretty gender conforming lives. And then often after trauma or often after a long time spent online on their own or often after a difficult puberty or because of their, you know, maybe their, their autism or other comorbidities have in, infringed upon them, they suddenly declare, they find out the concept of being trans and they say, yeah, that's me. And they declare it. And what we, we've found more and more and more is that those children seem to um, be very different from the children that all the research is talking about. The children that the research is talking about, for example, the famous Dutch studies that brought in the concept of puberty blockers, they were only studying children who'd had gender dysphoria like I had since babyhood. Like these were the kids who were consistently gender non-conforming. They never, there was no ROGD type children in the Dutch studies. And yet they were the children who were getting puberty blockers in the Tavistock up until very recently because they're so, they're so distressed and because gender has become such a big issue that people, and I think to be fair, people who don't, who have never suffered around their gender, look in it like, what the hell is going on? What is that all about? But I've no doubt in the early 70s when people first had eating disorders, they didn't know what, they thought, what, what, what's going on here? They're not eating. Why would you not eat? I don't understand it. And I feel that's the same kind of, we're at the same level of ignorance with gender. We're kind of around the 1970s here. And we're trying to understand a concept that not many people have had. And there's a huge amount of presumptions around it. And so this concept, the narrative of being born in the 
wrong body. It was cognitively calming. Oh, so that's what's wrong. They're born in the wrong body. We have to give them a new body. It was absolutely asinine. It was a very kind of vacuous and superficial understanding of what was going on. And so it's been medicalized by studies that were referring to children that were not rapid onset. These were children that have been consistently gender dysphoric. And there's tiny studies and they really haven't, they haven't compared well to the new studies. So the new study that was just released by the Tavistock, stop me if I'm rambling here, but the new study that was just released by the Tavistock, it actually did not agree with the results from the Dutch study. So the Dutch study said all these children who got puberty blockers fared very well. And then uh, the Tavistock's new study said, no, actually, there's, there's no difference. And anyway, to be honest, puberty is a very difficult time. And if you block puberty, then you're going to block the distress that goes with it. But you are also going to block the cognitive and physical and emotional development that goes with it. So if you block one, you block everything. You might block distress, but you're blocking very important distress that needs to happen so that you can become a fully functioning person. Well, that's that's very important aspect of this is that we're trying to forego suffering, but sadly or positively, as one views it, uh, suffering is part of our existence. Yeah, and it seems. Remember, we talked about the perfect storm earlier. It does seem like this this new concept that if you're in distress, there's something wrong, and we need to fix it. That that concept is causing more trouble than anything. And so parents think, my child is unhappy, I better fix them, I better bring them to the experts. And the experts think, well, I better medicalize them, they're not happy, rather than thinking, actually, life is very difficult, and puberty is very difficult. And becoming an adult is a difficult passage. And actually, very few, the human condition is prone to distress and worry and gloominess. And very few of us are happy a lot of the time. Most of us go from one fretting worry to another. And that is the human condition. There's amazing moments within that and it can be really beautiful to be alive and it can, you can have huge moments of happiness, but actually there is an awful lot of distress involved in living. And this idea that if somebody's in distress, we need to fix it is wrong. It's just wrong and it's causing more trouble than it's, it's saving. Well, this also leads up to another issue, how these communities are dealing with the criticism. Because after your film aired, you were criticized yeah. for, instance, for suggesting that many teens have a gender identity as a phase. What were some of the other fallouts of your documentary that you suffered? Oh, it was awful. It was awful. And it was a very lonely and isolating place to be. It was really horrible. One, you know, you know, when people kind of, a lot of people were very derisive of me acting as if, oh, she was just a tomboy and she hasn't a clue what, what we're going through. We're going through real pain. And this idiot comes in with her bluff Irish and they did, they were quite racist, bluff Irish kind of jovial manner as if, she, 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 as if I was this kind of Paddy Irish woman coming in with a big ticky uh, idea and uh, that I didn't understand. I did understand. I'd gone through something very intense as a kid and I knew exactly where I was coming from. But there also, there was an awful lot of um, accusations of transphobia, an awful lot of accusations of bigotry. And these were people from, you know, uh, from the Irish media from the English media, there was some trolls. There was one particular troll who, who still takes a pop at me quite regularly. And he was <laughs> so insidious. He was so pernicious and he was so obsessed with me. And he'd go on and on and on about me. Thankfully, I, I was very lonely at start because other people didn't know him. So he was particularly horrible to me. And I remember he was really horrible to the detransition woman who was in my film. So I knew that we've got a really dark person here. Anybody who bullies a detransition woman would have to be really quite bad. But I remember um, now he's well known to be a troll. Back then he wasn't. And so he's even got like solicitor's letters to silence him. Like, you know what I mean? He's really quite awful. But um, yeah, back then he wasn't. And so I felt very, very isolated. Now I feel there's a huge movement behind me. All the doctors, all the top doctors in Ireland have come out very strongly since the Kira Bell to say puberty blockers are inappropriate and that we need much more in-depth 
psychological treatment, which is exactly what I've been saying for two years. So that has been really satisfying and calming and relieving. Only in the last few weeks it's happened, but it's happened very fast. And it seems to me that there's a medical war and there's a culture war. And the medical war in Ireland very much seems to have um, been kind of sorted insofar as the doctors will not be prescribing puberty blockers very quickly to children in Ireland. That's quite clear, uh, if at all. I really don't think they will be. But then the culture war is going to continue on and on and on and on. And that is kind of, it's calmed me because if so long as kids aren't being hurt, I'm all right. I can handle a culture war. Yeah, a culture war is just culture war. But a medical, medicalizing children, that was not something that I could be cool about. And I was very intense about it. But I really think huge, huge, huge things will fall out because of Kirabel. Thank you.